see we're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today I have a special guest. She's someone I've known for many years through my interfaith and community work. And she is actually the founder of the Institute for Diversity in Civic Life. Please welcome Dr. Tiffany Pewitt. Hi. How are you? Great. Good. Coming to me from across town today. That's right. We live in the same city, uh, but I only get to see your face maybe once. Well, now that we have COVID even less, but maybe once or twice a year. Disappointing. Yeah. We should change that after the pandemic's over. Totally. The last time we met up, we had lunch at Whole Foods and had the best conversation, which is why I knew I had to have you on the podcast when I launched it. I was like, this is the stuff that needs to be captured for posterity. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So before we get started and we launch into all things IDCL and Tiffany Pewitt, I want to start with some icebreaker questions. Are you ready? Yep. Ready. Okay. (laughs) You are ready. I can see it. Uh, Okay. Number one, the question I have for you first is what is the last thing you watched on TV? The last thing I watched is an episode of Schitt's Creek. (laughs) Oh, good choice. Good choice. I started watching it months ago and I just couldn't get into it. And then I, then I just kept seeing all this buzz about it and I felt like I needed to give it another try. And I returned to it a couple weeks ago and it's now my go-to, you know, sometimes you just need those shows that are like lighthearted and humorous mm-hmm. and don't make you feel sad about the world <laughs> or anxious. <laughs> Or, and so it is now my go-to. It's like at night, I can watch that show, unwind, have a good laugh. It's a good show. It's a really good show. And there's, so the thing is, I hesitated to watch it because I thought it was going to be this sort of snarky, cynical type thing, but it's actually very innocent and sweet. Like there's a lot of sweetness in that show. And I did, I mean, I was the same as I I started in. I was like, do I really want to watch this? I went back to it and then I just, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, I'm with you. The characters, you know, I started out thinking that they were a bit unlikable, but they've become more and more endearing. And I, I do think there's something to be said for, you know, creating these kind of unlikable characters and then making you like them along the way. So yeah, it's pretty great. Very close to reality, actually. <laughs> that's how, I mean, I, I feel like that's true. I feel like we are all sort of annoying and selfish and, you know, pretentious. And then once you really get to know us, though, we all have the same sort of insecurities and fears and hopes and all of that stuff. Maybe. Yeah, you just gotta, you gotta try out a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Totally. And, and I have to say, Moira is my goal in life. Like, I want to be Moira Rose in 10 years. Like, everything about her. She's just so fabulous and obnoxious, crazy, and her style is amazing. And she's just rad i love her she's got the fake accent that you yeah mentioned. she does <laughs> <laughs> i need to i need to invent a, a an accent for myself so i can have a more interesting podcast 
my family's enchilada recipe. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. Okay, good answer, good answer. Okay, so the second icebreaker question is, what is the last book that you read? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I do so much picking through books, like rather than sitting down and reading them in their entirety, I do so much kind of picking out, especially because of because of teaching. But the book that I'm reading right now that I haven't finished is, oh goodness. Take About your time, Dr. Pewitt. <laughs> I, I know. I do this all the time when I'm teaching. Uh, I'll tell students that they should really read this book. And I'm like, called, what was it called? By, wait, who was it by? <laughs> but you should really read it. <laughs> right, right. Um, the book that I'm reading is... Uh, about Texas. Oh. God Save Texas? Oh, is it Lawrence Wright? Yes. Is I it loved God that Texas? book. Yes, that's the yeah. one that I'm reading. Yes. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. think I would love it, um, but it's just, it's actually so interesting, so full of interesting stuff. Yeah, I've had it on my shelf for a while. I've been meaning to get to it, just kind of haven't. But the thing that really called me to start reading it was after the big Texas freeze or during the big Texas freeze and seeing all this media coverage and all of the comments on social media by all mm -hmm. these people in other parts of the country that are like, serves you right, Texans. And the other kinds of like really dismissive, like let's paint all Texans with a broad stroke and, and basically indicating that they actually have no idea who Texans really are and yeah. don't understand the state at all. So, and you know, this is something that I think about all the time anyway, but it called me to start thinking more about these larger narratives of Texas, how we, how we describe ourselves, why those of us in Texas do have a view of the state and who we are that is a lot more nuanced and complex, but somehow that doesn't like make it outside of the state. And then I saw I had that book on the shelf and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to kind of start thinking more about, you know, how we tell this story of who we are. Well, and you're in a really weird position because, well, not weird, but a cool position, I think, because you've spent so many years actually documenting the diversity of the state. <laughs> like of all people, you have a really interesting perspective about what it means to be Texan. Yeah. I mean, I think Texas is a really fascinating state. It's giant. I think a lot of, I think a lot of Texans don't even fully wrap their head around how giant the state is. And for sure, people outside of Texas, I think, don't have a good sense of mm -hmm. how big the state is, how quickly it's growing, how it's changing all the time. Like it's it's a really dynamic place. And there's a lot of tension around a, a lot of kind of vying for some position of dominance and to be able to tell the story for other people. I see a lot of that. And so you know, I think oftentimes stories of who Texans are, are less a reflection of who Texans really are and more reflection of whoever got the platform to tell the story. <laughs> so I, you know, I have been really committed to like, what if we create narratives that actually include voices of lots of different people, of the people that actually live here? <laughs> what, what if we actually knew who lives in Texas and what their stories are and what their concerns are? And, you know, that they're, their issues, their hopes and dreams, their challenges, their backstory. It's been super fun and interesting work. And it's also made me see too, like one of the things that really stands out for me is 
how much movement there is uh, in Texas, movement, migration, like how many people's stories involve having lived in other places, maybe sometimes starting in Texas, moving away, coming back, sometimes starting outside of Texas, moving to Texas, but influenced by other places, other cultures, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. Um, so Texas really is this, I mean, it's such a cliche, but this interesting kind of giant melting pot <laughs> of all of these different kinds of cultures. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I know other people have said this and this isn't an original idea, but, but I also think that Texas is really a microcosm of the larger United States. That's something that the rest of the country hasn't fully woken up to yet, like doesn't realize they're still stuck in like Texas is just a bunch of cowboys and ranchers, you know, and evangelical Republican, you know, it's, it's Texas is Ted Cruz and Louis Gohmert and Texas is those people, but a whole lot of other people too. Right. And I think that other people are what, you know, the rest of the country is missing. Right. And I think that is shaded by people's very simplistic understanding of our political and democratic process in general in our country. I mean, you know, people will say, well, if Texas isn't Ted Cruz, then why do you keep electing Ted Cruz? Well, you don't understand. I mean, (laughs) like the political process is not set up for quick change, right? For quick, uh, you know, revolution. It's actually set up to oppose that. And so there has to be a lot of groundwork. There has to be momentum built in, in a lot of cases where there's deep entrenchment of, you know, political capital. And so it's the same problem I see every goddamn day on the internet is just people don't have any nuanced thinking around topics. They just want to demonize other people because that's the quickest, dirtiest, easiest way to just explain shit and go on. Yeah. And that's, it's, you're doing a disservice to yourself, to those people and to any said civic or national goals that you have. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. There's no shortcut to actually solving problems and or creating change. Well, and something I've pointed out to people before is that, you know, um, more Texans voted for Joe Biden than New Yorkers did, Mm -hmm. right? Of course, you know, the way that our electoral system works out, it's kind of like our votes didn't count (laughs) in the end, but it still means that there are, you know, millions and millions of Texans that didn't support Donald Trump, that didn't support, don't support Ted Cruz, that uh, um, have very different concerns, a very different view of the world, a very different idea of you know what they think this country should be than those in the Republican Party right now. And all those Texans, and millions of them, just get kind of ignored in this larger national discourse. Right, or abused. What is so shocking to me is that we're very well-placed people in the media you know, environment online who were saying things like, this is what Texans deserve. Those kinds of wholesale dehumanizing statements by people who have a platform who are supposed to be on our fucking side if you're a Democrat, right? Like, what, what, like, what is that? That makes me feel like I can't actually trust even my own political camp. And I don't think, I, personally, I don't think I actually can. I, I think they're as fallible as any other group, but it just, it just drove that point home. Like, these are people that legitimately do not have depth of understanding of the topics that they pontificate about every damn day. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the reality is we don't actually have representative government here in Texas and, you know, or at a federal level either. Ted Cruz doesn't actually care who his constituents are, right? He's got an agenda that he's pushing. It doesn't matter if, you know, close to half of his constituents don't agree with him. It makes no difference. You know, the, the same for my U.S. rep. And we see this, you know, across like statewide offices, a lot of local offices as well. Although, you know, Austin, I think is doing a better job than, than some places. And so blaming people when you don't, when they don't have representation. (laughs) It's so cheap. I mean, I know it seems easy and I know that if somebody has larger frustrations about the direction that our our country has been going, it might seem really easy to be like, oh, it's just the fault of this kind of giant backwater called Texas. Um, But that's, it's not a good explanation and it's not going to get anyone anywhere at all. It it doesn't actually explain. Right. It's not true. No, it's not true. No, it's not. Okay, so final icebreaker question before we get into like the nitty gritty of this conversation is what did you have for breakfast today? I had a lemon poppy seed muffin. Oh, how delightful. (laughs) Yeah, it was lovely. (laughs) Where where did you get it from? Well, from from the store. Those, uh, are they called Udi's? U-D-I? Oh, yeah. Like those little mini muffins. You had a mini Uh, muffin? Well, okay, I had four. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't want to say I had four muffins <laughs> okay that's fair no I mean I would have been pissed at you if you'd only had one mini muffin and I also had a latte and that was also delicious yeah that's what I had all right yeah very good excellent work I actually love any and all citrusy baked goods like that's my jam yeah especially lemon things lemon are my favorite mm-hmm. yes Okay. I might have to go to the store and pick me up some lemon <laughs> lemons mm-hmm. or a lemon bar or something. Okay. Well done on the introduction. So now let's talk about, my God, where do I start with you? Because honestly, Tiffany, you are one of my favorite conversation partners. You have so many interesting ideas and you've studied world religions. Your doctorate is in world religions or comparative religion. So it's in religious studies and my subfield is North American religions. It's kind of world religions, but really with a focus on North America. I mean, really primarily the U.S., but I did do my PhD in Canada. So I've studied religion in Canada as well. I see. Okay. So then I, I need to know what it was that made you decide that that was your, your field of study. And I would just note that you're not a particularly religious person yourself from what I know about you yeah yeah that's that's a good question what made me decide I mean I I took a very kind of meandering path you know some of it I think was kind of my personal orientation towards religion and spirituality I was raised in a Methodist family I don't know that Methodists are like the most liberal Protestant folks out there, but I was raised in Oklahoma, in rural Oklahoma, where most people were Southern Baptists. So comparatively, our family was was fairly liberal, you know, versus the Southern Baptists. <laughs> so I definitely have memories as a child, just friends on the playground asking me if I had been saved. Hmm. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> right. And it kind of freaked me out and scared me. I had a friend once I went home with a friend after school 
and I got taken to kind of a revival where people were, which I didn't know. And my mother certainly didn't know that's where we were going and was a little disturbed about it afterwards. And, you know, people were going up to the front of the sanctuary to be saved, crying, you know, wanting to be born again. It scared the shit out of me when I was like eight or nine years old. I was just like, I don't know what's happening, but I know I don't want to go to hell. (laughs) Wow. By the time I was in high school, I felt pretty cynical about all of that. I also felt pretty cynical about a lot of this. uh, What I saw was a lot of religion centered around false piety. You know, a lot of people who believed things that they couldn't live up to, you know, high school kids who believed that, you know, one should not, not have sex until they were married and that you, you know, and that your body is a temple and, but everyone was still like going out drinking and having sex and doing all of that. And so they were just like, you know, not good religious folks. That's how they kind of understood themselves. And I was kind of like, why would you be part of a religion that you can't live up to? Like, so where you're just always going to feel like a failed person, that seems, you know, yeah, a little problematic. And, and so I just kind of did a lot of questioning, right? Like I just was like, I'm, I'm just not so sure about this. I'm, I'm not, I don't see how this fits and why people do this. It doesn't really make sense to me. I think also I definitely was drawn to, I, I wanted more of a kind of universalistic theology. I did not like this idea of a God that was gonna only favor a few people and condemn everybody else. Like that just didn't, that didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand mm-hmm. that at all. I mean, I still don't. (laughs) That's that's still not my theology. And then when I was in college, I started out as a mass communications major. Oh. And yeah. And then I switched to philosophy and I took some philosophy of religion classes and I like those classes. I also started going to a Unitarian Universalist church. And uh, when I was in college in Oklahoma City, you go somewhere like Boston, which is like the heart of Unitarian Universalism, and those churches are everywhere and it's just mainstream. But a Unitarian Universalist church in Oklahoma City is very like this like sort of liberal progressive sanctuary for people, all you know, all these people that are trying to escape from conservative religion that are just like, you know, going to this church because they want to, they're trying to recover from what they felt like the damage they felt that conservative religion had done to them. And I think I was in some ways doing the same. I was really excited about that. And then I, let's see, I took some classes in Chinese philosophy and religion. Hmm. And I had this idea that I wanted to continue to study Chinese religion. I took a couple of Chinese language classes. Then after I graduated, I went to China and taught English for a year. Wow. I think I thought I was going to really pick up the language because I actually looked at graduate school before that and realized that, you know, to do graduate study in Chinese religions like Confucianism, I was, I was really interested in Confucianism that I really needed, you know, better language abilities than I had. So I think I thought when I was in China that I thought if I went for a language program, I would have had to have paid to study there. But if I went to teach English, I would get paid. And then I could also study language while I was there. And that didn't work out. I mean, I, 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 I did a lot of like drinking with other, fellow. I was 22. I only had to work 10 hours a week. And then I just had the rest of the time to myself in this other country that was entirely new to me. And so it was like, I'm just going to. Where did you go in China? Shenyang, Where is which that? is in Northeastern China. 
It is near, uh, so the province is Liaoning province. It is kind of near North Korea. It's northeast of Beijing. And it's in, it's the part of China that used to be Manchuria. Mm -hmm. So the Qing dynasty was a Manchurian dynasty. So there's like a little imperial palace in Shenyang that was the Qing palace. And then they moved into the imperial palace in Beijing. I'm assuming it was some kind of program that allowed you to go there and work. Did you get to choose your location? And if so, why did you choose that one? I did not. They just placed me there. I see. Did you like it? It was great. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was so much fun. It really opened my eyes to a lot. I mean, it's pretty crazy that I did this in, in a way when I think back about it now. It was 1998. The internet existed, but not in the form that it does today. It was, I mean, I definitely, it was, it was still a time of like guidebooks and paper maps to navigate your way around new places. There, there was no like, just look it up on the internet, no cell phones. So I didn't know much about the place I was going. I'd never left the country before. Wow. And so the first time that I ever left the country, I left to move to China for a year. Whoa. Little Tiffany grows up in Oklahoma and then decides to go spend a year alone, not alone, but without your family in China. So, uh, wow. What was the impact of that? It was pretty impactful. It was pretty mind blowing, but I would say my biggest takeaway was that it caused me to rethink a lot of the assumptions that I'd had about the world. It caused me to see like how small my world had been. You know, it led me to, to kind of realize that some of the things that I had just sort of taken for granted as the way things are, were really just, you know, the way things are for some people and not for everyone. And then once I came back, it definitely put me in a position where I felt like I could never go back to that kind of status quo of just like, we're just going to take everything around us for granted. Like, this is just the way things are, this place that we live in and, and, and you know, the things that people do, we're just going to go with that. So it, it definitely made me feel like I needed to know more. I needed to learn more that, that the world was, and also, I mean, I was 23 when I came back and, you know, when you're 23 years old, you just feel like there's endless opportunities. You feel like you've got your whole life ahead of you. And there's just, you know, you can, well, I don't want to say all 23 year olds feel that, but many do. There's just something about youth. You can do anything. And so I, I, and it led me to feel like I just needed to know as much as I could about the world. After I came back, I taught English as a second language for a year to international students back in Oklahoma. And then I went to Boston University and I did a master's degree in ethics. Mm. At that point, I was really interested in human rights. I sort of moved away from this idea that I was going to study Chinese religions. And I moved towards an interest in ethics and human rights. I'd had a professor who went to Boston University and you know talked highly of it. And so that kind of contributed to my interest. It's also the place that Martin Luther King Jr. did his PhD. So I think I also, and and, and it's got this big tradition of, you know, social ethics and justice. And so I think that was also part of what drew me to it. And then that was also, you know, that was also another adventure because I went from Oklahoma to living in Boston, which is Mm -hmm. a really different place. Did you like it there? I did. Yeah. There, There was a lot to kind of acclimate to I mean, I think it helped that I had already lived in China for a year. So the acclimation wasn't quite as challenging as it would have been if I hadn't had this other experience. And then when I finished my master's degree, I wanted to work at a human rights organization. 
And my then boyfriend, now husband, had moved to New York. And so the plan was for me to, when I graduated, to move to New York with him. I looked for jobs in human rights organizations in New York, and I never found anything. But I found a job at an interfaith organization called the Temple of Understanding. You know, and and, in my study of ethics, I definitely studied like some comparative religious ethics. The religion piece hadn't really been my focus and, you know, for the work that I wanted to do, but, but I found this job and I was like, oh yeah, this could be cool. And I partially found it because of someone that my grad school advisor introduced me to who had been on the board and, you know, as jobs often work out (laughs) when you have a connection. Uh, And then I worked there for six years and I liked the work a lot, but I also felt and, and, you know, it was 2002 when I moved there. So it was doing interfaith work in New York, very much in the aftermath of September 11th. So, it, you know, a lot of people were concerned with, I mean, that there was huge spikes in hate crimes. You know, that there was this question about, do we really know who our neighbors are? That took different forms. Like some people asked that question suspiciously, but others were like, we've been living, you know, beside... Muslims and Sikhs who are being discriminated against all these years and we don't actually know them and we should get to know them to try to help them, support them and be good neighbors. Right. So I think that that's something that helped me kind of move from where I had previously thought about religion as being about kind of spirituality and personal belief to thinking more about religion as part of a, of a person's identity, but also as a, you know, religion contributing to the kind of social, political, and even material conditions of a person's life. You know, that, that, that religion is more than just what you think. That religion can actually determine whether or not somebody hurls uh, some kind of insult at you when you walk down the street or not. <laughs> Right. And that it's really built into cultures and, and that it's also really built into the ways in which we categorize and delineate groups in our society. Right. So one of the things that I've grappled with for a long time, and you know my personal history with religion, is that you know religion is in some ways as much a construct as anything else right? The way that, and especially the way that we view it now in an organizational way, right? Whereas for many years, it was just baked into the culture. It was not separate from the culture at all. It was the culture. And there was a lot of interplay between those two things. And so it's weird to have grown up in in America where we really make an effort to separate those two things, right? In a lot of ways, we try to take it away from the public sphere and we try to We try to make as much space between our personal experience of religion and our civic life. And then to realize that there are people who that has never, ever been and and continues to never be a differentiation for them. Like they are who they are 100% of the time in all places. And in fact, that is the way most people on the planet live their lives. <laughs> it really like brings home or brought home to me. And it was an awakening about how, just how weird it is to be, you know, from the United States. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's, there's a little bit of this. I, I, I mean, it looks a little bit different, but, but I think there's a little bit of this in Europe as well. And you know, I, I think what it comes down to is that we try to convince ourselves 
that the secular space is a neutral space that's free of religion. Right. When in fact, it's actually just a space that's shaped and formed by like a kind of implicit Protestantism. So it's yes. really comfortable for Protestants, you know, to be secular uh, because, you know, secularism still fits their norms. It's harder for people of other religions to be so-called secular because they have to remake themselves in ways that Protestants don't. And I think that that was something that when I was doing interfaith work, you know, it, it took me a long time to be able to really see and name this, but something that it just bugged me that I just saw that, you know, a lot of the people who were doing interfaith work, a lot of Christians, Protestants, especially, and Catholics as well, but especially Protestants, were doing this work because it seemed like it seemed like the right thing to do, or it was a nice thing to do, or it was a way to give back or something. Or, or maybe they felt this sense of like, they felt spiritually driven to do it. Whereas Muslims, Sikhs, Jews, uh, you know, people of minority religious communities, you know, have been engaged in interfaith work because they feel like it's, you know, important for their survival, right. that by helping people better understand them, that they're less likely to be discriminated against or physically injured, <laughs> you know, if people know who they are, if they can convince other people that they're good neighbors, right? And once I started to like really see this, I was like, whoa, this is this is fucked up. <laughs> and we're not even acknowledging this in these interfaith spaces, like this right. power dynamic. That's what led me to go do my PhD, where I was just like, okay, I, I really have to spend some time sorting through this and thinking about this and uh, making sense of this. And that's also what's led me to, after finishing my PhD, to founding IDCL, to kind of keep doing this work that in the end is, you know, more so than thinking of it as interfaith work. I think of it as narrative work. Yeah. It's, it's really about the way that we tell our stories. Religion is, is, is definitely a piece of it uh, and, and is definitely a big part of it, but, but it's really about identities, you know, and, and it's really about, it's about cultures, but it's also about just creating a larger society, creating communities in which we can let people be who they are on their own terms and not say that like to be part of us, you have to remake yourselves to fit our norms, right. which has historically been the American way. <laughs> right, although that is, so in my experience with interfaith, then you have for a long time, it was really driven by this idea of the ideal is a neutral space, public space where we all go and rather than giving the privilege to one group, we just all sacrifice this, <laughs> this part of ourselves to, to engage in public. And then we can go privately into our little community centers and our homes, and we can have our one-on-one -on -one deeply spiritual faith activities. And what has happened, what I've seen happen, you have been kind of a part of this you know, movement. Uh, and it, it's not just with religion, it's also with race and ethnicity and all these other things is that people are doing what you are saying, which is, we want everyone to be able to engage as themselves all the time in all spaces, right? And that means broadening the definition of what it means to be American, broadening the definition of what it means to be a Texan, broadening the definition of what it means to even be Muslim or Jewish, so that it's not just the one Jewish person you know, or any Muslim 
or Jew or Hindu or Christian can't just stop and say, this is what it means to be, because you don't get to define for other people what it means to be those things. Yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, I, I think that's, that's a really good point you're making too, that this issue that we have in, in the public sphere of certain groups who try to kind of dominate the conversation and, and by those groups, it's primarily white Protestants, right? That same power dynamic is happening within religions as well, where you have certain groups that tro- want to speak for the entire religion. Right. There's not an easy answer to that. And especially from the outside, that gets really tricky because from the outside to say, the way this person is doing that religion is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. it's oppressive, it's problematic. And it might be oppressive and problematic, but yet to have an outsider try to police another religion or kind of domesticate it in that way is pretty fraught. Yeah, for sure. Part of the way that we've tried to address some of that, those complex dynamics at IDCL is is through doing oral history. And we have this oral history project called Religions Texas. And through this project, we're just asking people to tell their stories on their own terms, uh, to not speak for their religion. They're just speaking for themselves. And, and we're trying to get a lot of different stories. We're also trying to pay attention to all different kinds of identities in addition to religious identities. So making sure that we have some, you know, some gender diversity, uh, diversity of age is something that we're looking at. Like the way that we put after after we do these interviews, the way that we store them in this archive, we have all of these tags that, that are associated, metadata tags, right, that are associated with the interview that, that then become searchable. So, you know, one can go into the archive and you search by topic and you can see all the interviews that fit in that. One of these tags or, or categories is generation. Yeah. So, and, and we're using generation in that kind of conventional popular sense of generation, like um, Gen Z, millennial, Gen X, baby boomer. So you could go in and you could see like the ways in which people who are part of Gen Z describe their religion is very different than the ways that baby boomers describe their <laughs> They have a very different understanding about what it means to be religious, how they define themselves. And a lot of times that's left out of the conversations. Like traditionally interfaith work has involved uh, religious leaders kind of speaking for everyone else. And very often religious leaders are old, you know, our age. <laughs> We're older. <laughs> and, uh, and younger people have, their voices have just been largely ignored. Religious communities always want the young people to be part, to, to show up, right? They're, they're always like in any religious community. I think, you know, churches, I'm sure mosques are the same, you know, synagogues. It's always like, how do we get the young people? That's that kind of ongoing question. Right. But then they don't want the young people to get to define the terms of what it means to be part of that religion. In fact, they often believe that, you know, the young people, they want the young people there, but they're there to to learn from the older people. Right. And of course that's changing. I'm kind of painting with some broad strokes here. But I think that's right. Like, I feel the same way as somebody who was a, is a white convert to Islam, who also happens to be incredibly progressive minded in my politics and in my social outlook on things that people wanted me there but not to actually represent or to inform the space about my my identity and my experience it was more to bolster or support somebody else's definition of what it means to be muslim or what islam is 
and that is just my one little tiny <laughs> experience. I can, I see that happening. I've talked to my own kids who are both raised Muslim, who are both 18 at this point about their experience. It's very similar for them too, where they, they go into those spaces and they're like, yeah, we're not really represented here at all. It has nothing to do with who we are, what we believe. Yeah. Well, and I think what happens a lot with young people, and I see this in, with students, because I also teach at St. Edwards University and mm. teach world religions classes there. And I see this with some of my students in those classes who've been raised Catholic, and they start to feel like they don't see them represented within their religion. So that means maybe they just can't be part of that religion. Right. You know, that I have students that will say they're not really sure if they're Catholic because there are ways in which they don't agree with what they see as the kind of status quo of Catholicism. Therefore, maybe there's not a place for them and they can't really be part of it. Right. So one of the things that we talk about in those classes is that at least from a religious studies perspective, there's not a one kind of singular true authentic form of any religion that that you know all religions are internally diverse they're all this kind of larger spectrum you know and that for our purposes from the perspective of of, of religious studies from the academic study of religion we're not trying to figure out what's the right form of, of of a religion we just want to understand all the different ways in which religion gets expressed you know right. we want to see that spectrum within each religion and then we can start asking questions about like when we see people who are making claims about this sort of authentic view of that of or authentic form of that religion. You know, we should recognize those as, as kind of theological claims, but also recognize that those can be claims for power. Those can be claims for dominance. And, you know, in, instead of just taking those for granted, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. Like, let's bring a critical lens to it and kind of start asking these questions about like, well, so what kind of work do those claims do in claiming that this is the true form of this religion? Who does that benefit? Right. Who does that leave out? And, right. and just asking some of those critical questions. And we do that in that class from an academic perspective. But I hope for my students that it also empowers them to bring some of that critical questioning into their own personal lives and recognize like, doesn't just have to be, you know, that that's not just a line of questioning for the academic study of religion. You can also ask those questions, you know, of the community that, that you're part of and ask like, why do these people get to be in authority? You know, what, why do these people get to say, this is the way things are? And what if I don't agree? Does that have to mean that I'm not part of this community or can I just carve out my own space in this community and just say, no, you know, yeah. I think and I need to take your class. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Seriously. I love learning from you. I think I, and again, you know, my own kind of anxiety around religion where, because it it's so multi-layered, it informs so many things about your identity and it's so difficult to sit there and go deep into it because what inevitably happens is you end up confronting, it's almost like a form of really intense therapy, right? When you start diving into studying religion is that you are confronted with things that you consider to be truths, right? And that people around you consider to be truths. And then you that ends up requiring that you make changes <laughs> to the way you see the world and to your relationships with other people and to all of these huge huge frames in which you operate right and it can be it can lead to a serious crisis and so i feel like especially if you've come from any kind of background with spiritual abuse or cults or anything like that this is such an important thing but what happens is 
people like me who come into the, you know, who have the sort of impasse with religion, because of the way our society is, it just, it's easy for me to just not deal with it. Like I can literally, I could literally just go the rest of my life and live secularly and be angry at religious people <laughs> or religion in general. Right. And I think that that's, that's not going to resolve anything. And I think there's always going to be a piece that's not satisfied because I haven't gone there. I haven't been able to go there. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, I think I have similar feelings. Like I find the more that I study religion, the further away from it that I actually move, that, that I'm always like this external observer. I have periodically gone to Unitarian Universalist churches um, in my adult life here and there, but it's just, I don't know, I've just never found myself like able to, to really connect. <laughs> I, I'm just always stuck in that kind of analytic space. And then when I was at Boston University, I did start practicing Zen Buddhism and I kind of joined a Buddhist community. I mean, I had a couple of years of being kind of intensely involved in that community. And since then, I've also kind of continued to practice here and there. I mean, I've been a member of Austin Zen Center, although I don't think I've actually shown up in maybe two or three years. For whatever reason, like the actual connection and doing the work is just something that I have a lot of ambivalence around. And mm -hmm. I can't even entirely put my finger on why, but I think it has something to do with the not being able to shut off that analytic, like I'm always critiquing and analyzing. I can't just be in it. I'm always like kind of picking yeah. apart. Parsing. That's not, that's not a good habit for practicing Zen. No, you're supposed to not do that. <laughs> it's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have to ask you something that I'm not even exactly sure how to phrase this, but I think it's a really important piece. When we talk about individual narratives, right? And when we talk about the personal experience of religion within specific silos of religious community. I think one of the things that really drives the conservative end of that of those spectrums, right? One of the things that really causes anxiety to religiously conservative people is this idea of individualism. Because if suddenly everything is up for grabs, if everything is acceptable, if each person's interpretation of what it means to be this thing is valid, then what is the thing actually? And how is it community, right? And they have a very good point because community is not individual. <laughs> it is a group of people who share very specific ideas and vision and all of that kind of stuff. And one of the things about, you know, Western society that is so difficult when you're navigating religious community is that we do place a premium on individual uh, engagement and individual experience. And so how do you, well, I guess I, I understand that this is a tension, right? And that it's not one way or the other ever. It will never be one way or the other. But where does that tension ideally sit in America, where we are able to have the optimal individual expression of our connection to whatever we consider the divine and are part of a legitimate, legitimately part of a religious community? I often say to my students that we should think of ourselves as that, that we're both simultaneously unique, particular, you know, individuals and shaped and constrained 
by the social groups, you know, and, and, and the larger society socialization that has made us who we are. So we're both of those. And the problem with American individualism that, that we see a lot too in, because, you know, American individualism and that Protestant ethos of, you know, having an individual relationship with God, like those kind of map onto one another, like so mm-hmm. nicely that, and uh, the thing with American or the, or the problem with American individualism, I think is that there's too much focus on the individual and this kind of ignoring the way in which we're shaped by the social groups and, and just sort of larger society that we're part of. And so sometimes things that we think are unique to us aren't actually unique at all. Like the kinds of clothes that we wear or like our particular taste. We like the things that we like because other people like those things too. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. determined by being part of community, being part of society. And if you try to figure out like, what is it about you that's not somehow influenced by your relationship with other people, it can be pretty hard to, to pin that down. So I think that that kind of individualism in which you like try to tell yourself that everything you have in your life is because of like your hard work and virtue and like your unique abilities and just completely ignore the ways in which relationships drive and fuel all of us. Like, I think that is problematic and, 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 and I think it's a real distortion of like reality. Yeah. It's denial. It's flat yeah. denial. It's, yeah. it's denial. Yes. But then the other side of that is, you know, this focus on community in a way that subverts the individual. So I think there has to be this balance between recognizing that we're shaped by our relationships, recognizing that, um, you know, we're part of larger social groups that do kind of constrain our opportunities in this world, right? Especially dependent on things like gender and race and ethnicity and other kinds of groups. But yet, you know, we're shaped by these things. We're part of these things, but there is something in us that desires, I don't know what, desires expression, desires agency in some way. So so how do we find this balance between seeing the role of community and relationships, valuing community but not entirely suppressing that kind of individual will, like still get allowing people to have agency to determine and shape their own lives and larger communities as well. Like there's, I think there should be some kind of balance in there. What should that look like exactly? I mean, you know, that there are ideas such as there's, uh, I know the theologian John Cobb has talked about this idea of person in community to think instead of thinking ourselves as, as of ourselves as individuals think of ourselves as persons in community so that we see that we do have this individual aspect but we're also part of this group there's this kind of dialectic relationship between the two sometimes it's tension but it, at other times is it can be complementary there can be communities in which people lift each other up and liberate one another and yet are still solidly grounded in those relationships. You know, what if we what if we aim for that instead of saying like we're just going to have a small group of old men that are going to decide how everyone should live their lives right. and that's what everyone has to do. What if we like recognize that we need to live in community and that we are living in relationship with one another and that our actions affect other people and, you know, that our society is fairly, I don't know, is it broken? Maybe it's functioning the way that it's supposed to, but it's, it's got some problems, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people that are not having their needs met. And what if we figure out how to create communities 
in which people can be who they are while still being in community. <laughs> right. And everyone kind of supports each other and, and lifts each other up in some way. I think some of that's possible, but, but I also know that it, it will mean a lot of change to the status quo. And power structures, because I think that what keeps, what I see driving this one way of defining religion isn't so much that people are the average person is not threatened if somebody doesn't believe the same thing they do about some you know (laughs) nebulous definition of divinity like the average person is really concerned about relationships and day-to-day life and you know very practical things and and in my work in interfaith I've noticed this like it's almost pointless to talk about theology because what really people want to know is are these people enough like me that I don't have to worry that they're going to kill me really I mean when it boils down to it and you know I mean a lot of that is like evolutionary (laughs) evolutionary stuff lizard brain stuff like we see that something that's different we feel threatened by it so we need to be able to work that out and in order to function in society and and have a some level of trust fine But I think what drives this idea of there being one way of really having sort of religious sort of litmus tests, and I see it much more within religions than outside of religions, like across religions. It's much more of an intra-religious conversation across these different, you know, traditions is that there are people who absolutely have power within those religions, and they are the ones that define the fundamentalism of that religion. They continue to define what it means to be that thing in fundamental terms, right? Which is fundamentalism. And so as long as those people have that power, they're gonna do whatever they can to preserve it. And that it will never, like, I've had this argument many times with other women, (laughs) frankly, within my community where I'm like, you're not going to change it just by showing up and being nice. Like you're not going to change it by continuing to defer or to work within this framework because that framework ultimately is going to always serve the interests of the people with the power, right? It's, it's, it's the same conversation we're having in a larger context in America, only it's mm-hmm. happening within, you know, religious silos. So I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess the real challenge for all of us who are, progressive-minded people is how do we how do we not throw out the baby with the bathwater? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do we keep the things that are valuable to us? How do we stand our ground and insist on our legitimacy and do those things without continuing to empower people that literally define what it means to belong to these yeah. communities? Yeah. Well, and I also recognize too, that there are a lot of people out there that find comfort in some of these kind of social hierarchies, like having this sort of rigid hierarchical society where these people are in charge and everyone has a role to play. Um, you know, that there's typically these kinds of societies have really rigid ideas around gender in, in, in particular that are this kind of view of society that for some people, it makes it feel, it feels traditional, but, but it feels safe. They feel like, you know, if there's too much 
freedom. If there aren't enough rules, there's just going to be chaos and this feels safe to them. And I get that asking them to think differently about those things, even people who, you know, from the outside, it would seem that they don't benefit from being part of that hierarchy, but asking them to feel different feels very destabilizing to them. It's asking them to rethink their world. And, you know, when they feel like their world is working for them, the last thing they want to do is like, mess it all up. And so I get that there are those going to be those challenges. I don't know that I want to advocate to say that like we have to dismantle all hierarchies, although, you know, this is always a kind of conundrum too when you're thinking about the work of like belonging and tolerance and inclusion and these kinds of things that this idea that like we want to create a space in which everyone can belong, but where do we put the people who their true authentic self is actually involves oppressing other people. (laughs) Right. I'm not sure. Like I get, do you get to sit at the table with us and be part of this decision-making when we profoundly disagree with your view of the world? So, and, and there's, I don't even know how we exactly resolve that. So there's always going to be that tension at the same time. I think that very often those kinds of social hierarchies are propped up by dehumanization. The way you justify some people having more power than others is by saying that some people are more valuable or, you know, more human than others. And I'm pretty solidly opposed to dehumanization (laughs) in all forms. Let's stop doing that. So like if we're, so if we're committed to humanization, what does that mean that we have to do? And then what does it mean to humanize people who dehumanize, right? And so like, because there can be this temptation to dehumanize dehumanizers, right? And this is a real struggle. Like, how do we not dehumanize those who, like, how do we actually humanize everyone? How do we see everyone as complex human beings with dignity and value, even when they do horrible, awful things? Right, right. I mean, I am of the the mind that I don't think that most people are I think the vast majority of people, even those who are doing oppressive things are not terrible and they're not trying to do things, right? And dehumanization is not just a product of being a hate-fueled monster. It's often just the product of, frankly, putting your own self-interests above others and finding ways to justify it. My friend Fatima says, you know, people aren't against you. They're just for themselves. And, but at a certain point, if you're so much for yourself that you're literally watching other people suffer or you're finding ways to justify that suffering, then, you know, maybe you, maybe you are against them. But the point of that is we are all subject to that. Like every single goddamned one of us can say that we have done oppressive things to other people or that we have put our own interests above others. Every single group, once they have achieved power, will do the same thing. This is a function of power. This is a function of the corruptive influence of having more than others and being a inherently self-preserving creature, right? And so we have to look at people who currently are in that position and see a reflection of what we are capable of as well. So I think that is a huge step in trying to humanize them and figure out what to do about bringing them down and you know making it possible for other people to have more power. But also the thing that's missing, the thing that's missing in every revolution is how do you then prevent the people that rise up from doing the same thing? Because it is an endless cycle. A history is just this endless cycle of 
people who are have power then being then falling and other people who didn't have power coming up and doing the exact same thing to other people that are different from them. I mean, that's what people do. It's not even, I don't even, I even hesitate to call it evil. I think it's just human nature. It's, it's who we are trying to survive. And, and we have a lot of, you know, my dad calls it rationalize. We rationalize anything to preserve what we believe is important and valuable and is going to serve our needs, which we always believe are virtuous, <laughs> regardless of who we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, I think that's also, you know, points to like the power of narrative work in this, that like part of the way to change our society is to change the narrative and tell a different story. Because you're right about how so much of the kind of status quo, the way things are, gets held in place by these kinds of rationalizations, these rational lies, you know, that that we tell ourselves things are this way because this is the way they've always been. This is the way they have to be because this makes the most sense, you know. Because if you give rich people tax breaks, it'll trickle down to the poor. <laughs> these kinds of things. We tell ourselves these, these, these kinds of lies, right? So we change the narrative. So if when we talk about things in different ways, I mean, it takes time. It doesn't happen immediately. But if we change the way that we name and describe and, and give meaning to the world around us, it does eventually change like our actual social, political, material conditions, you know? So I think one way to do some of this work is just through the conversation and the narrative changing, and also the the elevating of voices of people that have been ignored and haven't been paid attention to, and, and you know, haven't been, that lack kind of representation, that, that have been marginalized. That doesn't totally resolve that issue of how do we keep the oppressed from becoming the oppressor like that's kind of a tricky part but I do think no but I I think you know that is that's an ongoing sort of societal conversation and and I think it will also be a global conversation at some point as the human race continue you know the globe gets smaller and we recognize that we're all literally dependent on one another but I think what I think what also has to happen is this, the undermining of the rationalized that keep these systems in place, right? So I'm not a fan of burning things down, but what I do think we need to be constantly doing is chipping away at the foundations that keep these kinds of um, oppressive structures or whatever it is that allows people to hold on tightly to power (laughs) away. And one of the ways, one of the most effective ways, as you said, to do that is to elevate the personal narratives because you can't, you literally cannot. and, And I mean, all kinds of people who have done peace work will tell you this. You cannot bring people together, humanize them, and then and then they can just go out and start killing each other again. Like the key to getting people to understand one another or, or to work together or to humanize one another is to bring them together and allow them to hear one another's perspective, right? And so what that does then is it starts picking away at the threads. I'll give you a perfect example. I was raised to believe that homosexuality is a mortal sin. An absolute mortal sin. I grew up thinking gay people were terrible people who were choosing to be perverse, they will not be safe. 
And no amount of anybody telling me anything otherwise was would have moved me. What moved me was when I met gay people, <laughs> right? And then what that does is, I, and then it wasn't even just like a revolution. It wasn't like, oh, gay people are fine. What it does is it starts picking away at threads, right? And you're like, well, this person is not a bad person. This person rescues dogs. This person has a mother who's devoted, who, you know, they take care of. This person donates to charity and this person has done nice things for me, right? And that starts to eat away at your rational lies. And then you realize, oh, uh, all this stuff I believed that, I mean, it forces a crisis. There has to be a crisis point where you confront what you, you know, what these false ideas. And then things kind of fall apart and it's kind of ugly. <laughs> and then you start to rebuild your worldview. So I think what we have to do on a much larger scale is I would say not force a giant crisis right? Because I think when that happens, innocent people get hurt. But I think what we do is we eat away at the foundation and we force lots of little mini crises. And then you see change happening on a much, in a very organic way. I think you've seen that with the GLBTQ movement in this country. When I was growing up, nobody approved of gay people publicly. And now through this kind of beautiful way of being activists, it's perfectly acceptable by most people, right? Statistically, most people are like, yeah, sure, gay people are fine and they, they should be allowed to get married or at least live together publicly, right? That was not the case when I was a kid. So I don't know. I mean, I, I get frustrated because I think a lot of the solutioning around injustice is to burn things down or to force a major crisis, I think that's actually very dangerous. And I, I think what will happen is that will create a vacuum. It won't create a solid structure on which to build a better, healthier, more productive society or more inclusive society. Responding to what you were saying about specifically around like sexual orientation and identities, um, it's, it's really fascinating to me to see how kids today, you know, are so open to ideas of gender fluidity and also, you know, fluidity around sexual orientation. And for sure, when we were kids, that was like, was not a, that, that would like to be gay was hard. Like it required courage and bravery to come out in the open and that you would definitely be discriminated against and you were definitely going to be marginalized. And that was not, it was not very accepted. And I think it was a, it was a real struggle. But I'm not sure that, and I don't want to say the struggle is gone. I know that there still is struggle, but I'm not sure that it's a struggle today that it was then. Like, I think that kids today, they're so much more familiar with people with, you know, both different sexual orientations and gender identities and um, that, that kind of non-binary approach. And it's familiar to them. It makes sense. It's comfortable. It doesn't seem risky in the same way. And that's a result of you know, changing the narrative. Like that's, that's narrative work that we've done, that we've started talking differently right. yes. about things. And that's led to, it's, it's really changed, you know, the kind of social material conditions. I mean, there's still way more work to do. And I, I don't want to minimize the struggles that queer people face, but so much progress has been made. And I also just, you know, I find it fascinating. I even find, you know, myself thinking about, like I've, identify as, as cis het and I'm married to a man, also a cis het man and haven't really 
exactly question my own identity that much. But in, you know, the past 10 or 15 years or so, as I've spent more and more time with, especially reading like queer theologies and also just queer theory, it's made me think about all the ways in which my own views of gender have been really constrained by the binary norm and just thought about like how my view of gender, my own relationships could have been different if I had been more open to queer theories when I was younger. Would I identify as queer now? I'm not exactly sure about that, but I do think we could all benefit from like having our lives queered a little bit. (laughs) Word. Amen, sister. I believe in that. Yeah. Like, I just think that, that there's a lot of value in queer approaches to identities and relationships that we could all gain from it. But it's so weird that for so long, it was about like, to be queer is to be part of this like little marginalized struggling group of people that I think even when I I didn't believe that it was wrong, I think I still saw queer people as like, oh, that's a really hard life. You have to deal with discrimination. Like you can't fully be yourself around a lot of people. You have to deal with discrimination all the time. And I think I focused more on the struggle of it than recognizing the liberation within it. And I do think there's something very liberatory about, you know, just queer perspectives on not having to be constrained by these rigid kind of gender roles and being able to love who you want to love and and being able to kind of explore who you really are and express that in authentic ways that don't have to reflect what billboards and advertisements and mass marketing tell us we should look like or feel or or be. And I, I think that that's super cool. And so I'm glad that my kids have that exposure. Do you see the same trajectory happening for racial equality? So the idea right now that so much of the dialogue around race and about racial identity is about being part of a marginalized and struggling community, as opposed to embracing the, you know, the joy and the power of who people are, right, within these different identity categories. Do you see that happening in another, I don't know, couple decades, maybe a generation where it will be fully, legitimately, openly embraced and celebrated and not at all about, well, not to say that it's not about struggle, but about owning it more than fighting on behalf of it, right? Making it a part of your, proudly making it a part of who you are and building off of it instead of being, I guess, I feel like it's still very much in a defense posture, right? As opposed to an offensive posture. Yeah, I think that's a good question because it's. it seems like some of what you're asking about is like, what, I mean, it really comes down to like, what are we going to do with whiteness, right? What, what, what do we do with whiteness? And whiteness has been, it's such a dominant force in American society. And it's so, so coercive and it's so oppressive. Is it and, more than heterosexuality as a category? I mean, I, I think they're all intertwined, really, I would say. Do you follow Tressie McMillan Cotton? Do you know her? She's an academic, a sociologist. I think she's at Duke or UNC, but she also writes... Uh, and does a lot of kind of translating things into um, like for a more popular audience. And she's really brilliant and amazing. She's written this book called Thick. And there's this chapter in it on beauty in which, uh, and, and, and she's a black woman. And she talks about, and it's so amazing, really. She talks about, the, it's, it's about the relationship between race and, and gender 
and beauty standards, but she describes herself as not being beautiful. And she talks about how, you know, so many people, when she says that she's not beautiful, want to kind of quickly go, oh, oh, yes, you are, you're beautiful. And, you know, or, or this, like, you're beautiful in your own way. And, but what she wants to argue is that the ways in which we define beauty in American society is really all about the white gaze. And it's all about white femininity. And it's really all about upholding whiteness. I mean, it gets applied to women, but it's about the way in which like race and gender intertwine and um, white femininity has kind of helped to uphold whiteness. And that she's argued that like, you know, she's a black woman and that's not her. She's that, that she's not part of that. And so in saying she's not beautiful, it's both recognizing that she doesn't fit those standards, Mm -hmm. but it's also a way of like even rejecting it. Like she's, she's just not going to be part of it. She's not interested. It's not for her or about her. It doesn't benefit her and she's fine with it. Well, and and also, I just want to point out, it's also, you know, we'll fold in sort of the, the gender piece where, the value of women's you know, or, or women's value has always for or for most of history been based on whether you can attract the right kind of person who is going to basically not even enrich you but enrich your family and you know whether you're talking from a biological point of view like evolutionary biology or whether you're talking about the social structures of like families marrying their daughters so that they can get dowries and all of that kind of stuff I mean a premium is on a very specific on the ability of women to attract people who will marry them right or or who will take care of them and have children with them and you know that's not what a woman's value is in either this idea about what is beautiful is based on the on that on very much not just the white gaze but also the white male gaze yeah and you know especially in american society it, it's also so intertwined with capitalism and with our consumer culture and it's all about like so many women in american society our ideas of what counts as beautiful or attractive are shaped by like proximity to whiteness in in so many different ways And, and part of that too it's whiteness but it's also about uh, this kind of rigid view of what's beautiful. So it discounts different size bodies. It yep. discounts ability. It discounts it discounts anything except for this really rigid right. idea or standard of beauty. And it makes me think about as well, like how much I have been shaped by this. And like, what does that mean for me as someone who both, you know, I see how harmful white supremacy is in in our society. And I reject it. And I'm deeply committed to mutual liberation. And yet I also recognize that I have lived my life in the body of a petite white woman with blonde hair. And so in many ways, I have met that ideal and that kind of white gaze. And and, And so I've benefited from that. Although there are other ways in which I haven't met that. And I realize I've tried to hide it in some ways and maybe to have tried to hide those things. So an example of this, I have a bone disease that's called multiple hereditary exostosis, MHE. It's kind of rare. It's basically, it causes bone spurs to grow around growth plates when you're a child, if you haven't, like bone spurs grow around growth plates when you're a child and it can stunt growth. So some people who have, I have a fairly mild case of it. Some people who have a more severe case of it have like their limbs, they're not the same length and it can actually cause like 
real disability because of the way that it stunts growth. Now though, you know, they're better at catching it and that can do surgeries to remove the bone spurs from growth plates to, to not have that happen. But one thing that it did cause for me is I have very asymmetrical toes, like extremely asymmetrical toes. My toes are like, you know, they're not that kind of stair step that most people's toes are. Like I have, I have one toe that's like way shorter than, than others. And, um, and that was because of bone spurs on growth plates. And I've always been super self-conscious of that, especially as a kid and just like tried to hide my toes and not wanted people to see it. And it's made me wonder too, you know, I mean, thinking about these things more recently, like how much of it, of my wanting to hide this aspect of myself, that's just like, you know, it's just my body, my feet and toes still work. They don't fit that they, they don't look like the toes of, you know, models and magazines on beaches or in sandals and things, but, the, but they function and they're just yeah. fine. So why do I care? But how much of that is shaped by the ways in which I have met the white gaze. And so I want to like any part of me that doesn't fit in that, I just want to like kind of hide or not show. And if I were less able to kind of fit into that standard, might I feel more empowered to just be who I am? Right. And then of course, like, as I think about that, there's part of me that's like, I should shave my head and stop wearing makeup and just like, like get rid of all vanity because in the end, like any, you know, any, uh, any vanity that I have or any way in which I am trying to make myself look attractive is just shaped by the ways I've been socialized into white supremacy and I should just reject it all. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the big challenge here is what you touched on earlier was we are in fact social, right? We are social beings or we have innate desire to be accepted. So you can't just say, I'm going to not care. Like you do care. It's a process of like, how do you then navigate this fact that you care with the reality of where and you live and who you are, you know, like this is the thing is that there's no easy way to deal with this. And I think part of it is we are such a, again, weird society that is artificially constructed as opposed to the way that people evolved over time organically in different places where they, you know, people, and even still to this day, have much more in common with one another. Here in, you know, especially in our society, we just throw everybody together and then we enforce this denial that there are differences, right? We enforce it because we think it's for the good of, of everybody and then expect everyone to be satisfied and happy and and feel included because we're didn't you know like it's just it's a weird environment for human beings to be in and i don't think we give that enough credence i don't think we understand even with the horrible social nonsense and political nonsense that we've seen in this country since its beginning we also have cultural nonsense right? That doesn't make sense to us inherently as human beings. We cannot deny who we are, who we evolved to be, and go through our whole lives pretending that we're proud of our American identity when we don't even know what the fuck that is, right? Most of us don't even know what the fuck that is. I, I read a lot of uh, James Baldwin last year, and he talks a lot about this, right? From the perspective of an American, of 
an American black man. He had this, you know, realization when he went to Europe of how different he was based on not just his skin color, where he felt that profoundly here in America, but also because of his Americanness, right? And so I feel like it's like we're fish, you know, in the water. We just assume that this is the way the world is. This is not the way the world is. <laughs> this is not how most people operate, where you just, you take all these, you know, intelligent beings who have incredible diversity and throw them into this big mix and are like, okay, um, check all of these things at the door, operate as if you are 100% invested in this society and proud of who you are and just keep these little pieces for, you know, your special days. These are the places and the times when your identity, your unique identity are allowed, are recognized. It's weird. It is weird. Yeah, it's weird and nonsensical in a way but in another way, it's very systematic and it's all about protecting power, right? Right. Like, you know, we have this diverse society and say things about how we value diversity. And at the same time, we have a society in which we've decided that only certain people are beautiful, only certain people are intelligent, only certain people are valuable, only certain people are deserving of power and authority. And then we've told everyone else that if they work really hard, maybe they can be like those people too. <laughs> and it, well, and work hard and also spend a lot of money on oh products that will help you be like those people. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so, and it, I think part of what this gets to for me as well is recognizing like when we talk about anti-racism work, like a lot of people want to think that like to be anti-racist is to just affirm how problematic racism is, right? And the inherent equality of all people. And if you can just do that, you know, you're on track. Right. And no, if you're a white person, you have to be willing to kind of critique and dismantle it all. You have to recognize the ways in which whiteness as an ideology of dominance has shaped all of your socialization Mm -hmm. as a white person. And then, you know, if you ask the question of like, okay, so all my socialization as a white person has been shaped by these dynamics of dominance. And maybe I don't want to be part of that. and I want to reject it. So then what's left? (laughs) Right, right. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier when, when I was talking about confronting religion, right? Like your religious angst and how easy it is in our society to like just not confront it. But if you don't, if you don't dig in, then you're not going to get the reality. You're not going to understand who you really are or from whence you've come. And for white people, it is the same thing in this in this country. It is really easy to say, this is a problem, and then just not deal with it, or not do anything specific. And part of our problem is that we really, we just reward people (laughs) identifying problems instead of doing anything about it. Like you can really skate for a long time as a white person by just going around yelling about how terrible racism is without actually fucking doing anything about it. So, I mean, I don't know, like, I, I mean, it's a, it's a big, big project to try to dismantle race, yeah. or, you know, white supremacy. It's a big, all of these things are really big. My question then to you as we close out is, are we making any progress? <laughs> Please say yes. I think, I think we are. Yeah, I think that we are. I mean, I don't think progress is always like super linear, right? right. Like, so, right. so, you know, there's sometimes the, you know, a few steps forwards, a few steps back um, that happens. 
but I think we, I think we are making progress. I think, I mean, I see us having conversations, sophisticated conversations about, you know, larger social power dynamics that at one point in time had just been like, these are only things that people in like academia talked about. And now we talk about that as, you know, in the public, you know, as an example, the concept of intersectionality is a commonly understood concept now, but that, but that came out of academic, you know, critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw developed that as part of an academic journal article, like that, that was academic discourse. And now people talk about that as part of public discourse and it informs the way that they think. So, and, and it, it is changing narratives and it's changing who speaks, who gets, who gets seen, who gets heard. Different people I think are represented in larger discourse now, but of course we have so far to go. And the trick is to all of this, can we actually dismantle white supremacy in a way that that's not just like sort of reworking it so that other people who've been excluded from whiteness can now be part of it, but actually like dismantle it and transform our society. Right. And like, what, what would that even look like? I mean, at this point, because I see white supremacy as really inherently intertwined with our capitalist economic system. And so, and, and as a way of justifying like why some people ha- get to have so much and other people just have to have so little and like can't meet, have their basic needs met. So I think in my mind at this point, and it is evolving, I think the dismantling of white supremacy would ultimately look like in terms of material conditions everyone having their needs met, food to eat, shelter to live in, decent education, economic opportunity. Like if everybody had that, an economic opportunity that is not like go work a 60 hours a week at a minimum wage job and and never get to see your kids. Yeah. Well, that would (laughs) mean us defining, like, you know, we had a period in human history where we defined universal human rights, quote unquote. I think we need to maybe expand that definition a little bit more <laughs> mm-hmm. to include things like having the very basic things that we need. Yes, we all need an income, but there's, it's why should some people have to work 80 hours a week, right? And other people have to work 20 hours. Like that, that kind of thing, we really need to rethink what it looks like based not just on what we need to quote unquote survive, but what we need to thrive as individuals and as a collective. And I don't think that we have that. I think what we have right now is our basic understanding of human rights is what does it take so that you don't die in the gutter? (laughs) And that's not really living. And that's not the pursuit of happiness, right? Like that's not what we all really want and need out of life. I mean, one of the, I think most profound aspects of the universal or pieces of the universal declaration of human rights is the piece where it talks about like that we all should have the freedom from want and the freedom from fear. And if you think about like, what does that mean if we can live our lives free of want and fear? I mean, we have a long way to go to get to that point. In well, the that U- would I'm- totally destroy all marketing. I know. It's true. No, I mean, our, our political system and our economy is built on insatiable desires and also insatiable fear right. that we're we're scared shitless that we see all these people struggling out there and instead of thinking like how do we help them how do we change this so many of us think like 
thank God it's not me. Right, and what right. if it is me? You know, how do I make sure that's not me? I think to be an American is to feel like you live in a state of precariousness, unless you're completely oblivious. And I, I know there are many oblivious Americans out there, but if you're, if you're paying attention, you know, you feel like this perpetual state of like, I could be next, you know, which is, I mean, it might be true, <laughs> but, but, you know, we need to find ways to shift that so that we can be in solidarity with others. And so that it's not just about feeling powerless to do anything about the suffering of others. And then just hoping that you don't end up suffering in the same way, instead of like, how can we all work together in collective ways to lift each other up? And I mean, we're the richest fucking country in the world ever in human existence. We have so many resources. Yep. And the only reason that we have so much poverty and suffering in this country is because of like the ideologies that have justified that is like, this is the way that it's supposed to be. Right. So I think it's time to change those. Well, I also think there's a engineering, I, I like to call it like the, the supersize me theory. Let's call it that. So basically the fast food industry has discovered that there are things that are part of who we are as humans that make it really likely that we're going to keep eating their food in larger quantities, right? So, you know, we have these natural cravings for salts and sugars and fats and all of this. And so they basically have engineered food that makes us continue to eat, even though we are not hungry, <laughs> right? And in quantities that are way beyond our body's capacity to even process it, right? I feel like a lot of our mentality in this country is engineered the same way. We have certain things within us, like, you know, fear of loss and fear of poverty and fear of hunger and fear of violence and all of these things. And those fears are engineered or, or there, our system is engineered to take advantage of those fears, right? Our system is not engineered to foster kindness, trust, love. And, and I know I'm, I'm sounding a little Marianne Williamson here, but I, I really think that, that there's a lot in there. I don't think it's like one evil, you know, plot. I think this is just how, it's just part of people gaming the system, right? And continuing to game the system. And I can tell you, even as an activist, the easiest way to get people to donate to your fucking organization is to send out an all points bulletin about how awful things are about to happen, right? Like that's what we do is we create the sense that we can't trust other people, that we are in danger and that the only way that we're going to protect ourselves and the people we love and the things we care about is send money, buy things, ignore the pleas of those people, you know, do this thing, do that thing. It is bullshit. And I think the most courageous thing anyone can do is to flat out fucking refuse to participate in that, to absolutely stand up and say, I will not dehumanize anybody. I believe every single person deserves the exact same amount of my love and respect and humanization and that there's infinite potential in every single person. And if you, you know, it, like that is a really hard thing to do. It's not possible probably, but to have that as the ideal is where I think we, that that I mean that's the only thing that can drive me right forward otherwise if I really thought that everybody around me was horrible or self-serving or that there was some evil plot I would have to give up <laughs> because 
because I can't fight that as a person. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. I mean, it is that work of like, of solidarity and connection. I mean, I think it's also recognizing that kind of emptiness in all of us in, in, in this country that comes from like all, just all the different so- social structures that have divided us. And so we feel disconnected and we feel like we don't have the relationships that we want to have. And so we try to fill that emptiness with, with stuff, consumerism and products and things that are going to make us feel better. But if we could work on that, on those connections, again, it's that like you talked about the way that you've changed your mind about things just by knowing people. I think relationships are what will save us. And, you know, when I think about climate change and, you know, our future and what's ahead of us, um, solid, like building relationships, building communities that are based in relationship and solidarity, not charity, but, but real solidarity, uh, where we see, you know, our own well-being is intertwined with others, you know, our own liberation is intertwined with the liberation of others. Like that's until we get to that point, we're going to continue to struggle. And if we can make that shift, I think that that's, that's what will save us in the end. Otherwise we're all going down together, (laughs) whether we realize it or not. (laughs) 100% agree. I absolutely think that you are correct. And you know, we are just, we can only do what we can, where we are with what we have. And the one thing that we all have within our grasp, or the the, the only thing that every single one of us can do is to reach out to the, the close, the people close to us, and the people that we encounter in our communities and across communities. And it's one reason why I was called to interfaith work in the first place, right, is to build those relationships. To me, this is not, and I appreciate the academic work of so many people, but this is not an intellectual exercise. This is very much a human, a relational exercise and anyone can do it. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have some special qualifications or a title to, to build human relationships in your damned city or in your neighborhood. And so um, I'm, I'm so grateful for people like you who have vision like this and who are also doing things to encourage other people to see that vision and to elevate the voices of people who need to be heard, the voices of people who are actually challenging the dominant narrative, the, the voices of people that are eating away at the foundations of, you know, a power where we're going to, you know, hopefully be able to see more of a democratization of power and more people who are able to do what they need to do to make our society better, to make it better for all of us, (laughs) all of us. And, you know, that's, maybe that is just too idealistic and hippie-ish, but I don't even give a shit at this point. I'm 47. I don't care if that's what we're, if that's what we need to do to live out our life. I would, I'd rather, I'd rather do that. Me too. (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's all that we can do. You know, we build relationships. We try to meet people where they are, understand where they're coming from, try to find ways to let them speak for themselves instead of speaking for them or telling their story for them and figure out like in in like real deep listening, like listen to people, tell us who they are. 
and figure out what we can learn from that, you know, and, and, and also let it change us, be open to, to changing, to be open to hearing someone tell a story that makes you think of the world in a different way. And that maybe even makes you rethink a whole lot of things that you thought you knew and be okay with that. Don't see that as something that's going to like totally pull the rug out from under you, but be okay with some of it is just a little bit not of not knowing, like recognize that we don't know that they're all everything that there is to know and that we might constantly learn new things that might mean that we're constantly being remade and transformed. Yeah. Yep. When you break apart pieces of yourself, you just make room to expand. It's like, it's just, it's a matter of growth, right? And you can't live in the same shell that you have always lived in. You have to make room for you to, for yourself to grow. That's our mandate, whether we're using social justice or religion or philosophy or any of those things, that's, that's the function of those things is to help us break apart, right? Like break into pieces and, and get rid of some of the, or the old, you know, shell of what, how we see the world and, and just expand until we, until we encompass all. (laughs) All right. All right. I spent way too many years as a hippie. (laughs) <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for that me too me too yeah I guess oh, either that or I've been reading the Dr. Bronner's bottle <laughs> <laughs> I don't even care I don't even care think, think I mean you I, I also love ideas of you know j- just the kind of love and oneness and connection my only concern is when people only focus on that stuff and they ignore the power dynamics and they right. think that just like goodwill and good wishes are going to be enough. Right. And that's got to be coupled with like, let's, let's pay attention to what's really happening and recognize that there's a lot that has to be dismantled. Yeah. Yeah. And oh yeah. Growth is, is simultaneously exhilarating and painful. Like yeah. that's, there's no way around that. I think, I'll think if you are allowing yourself to, or if you're, fo- if you're forcing yourself not to grow because you're avoiding pain, man, I got some sad news for you. You're not going anywhere in this life. Like you yeah. have got to feel it and it's not comfortable at all. Yeah. But I think at the same time, I think the more you do it, the more comfortable it becomes actually. Like I find myself more and more comfortable with being uncomfortable, you know, that, that it's something that there's like some muscle memory in it. Like you, you know, you do it a few times and then, you know, you get back to that. You're like, Oh, I I know this discomfort. This is a familiar feeling. I know I can kind of make my way through this and I'm going to be okay in the end. I'm I'm, going to be changed, but you know, it's not going to destroy me. Well, you acquire skills, right? You acquire a toolkit of ways of managing your discomfort so that you can allow yourself to still do the work without having your <laughs> your whole psychology threatened. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I also just find that the older I get, the more of that that I want to do. Mm. It's interesting because I, I kind of remember maybe sort of hearing when I was younger, this idea that people get more conservative as they get older, like more set in their ways. Yeah. And but I don't, that, that's definitely not what's happening to me. Like, in fact, I find that the older I get, the less use I have for the ideas and the social structures and things that are holding me back and, and, and holding me down. Like the things that I thought I had to accept when I was younger, because that's what everyone else does. Like the older I get, the more I'm just like, if this isn't, doesn't serve me or serve kind of the greater good, then throw it out. Yeah. No use. It. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, for sure. Oh, my whole goal in life, I think I told you this before, is to be just this this absolutely don't give a shit, wacky, out there old lady. You know, like all of the constraints, all the social constraints are gone and I can actually be this person that everybody looks at and is like, you know, you're, there's something wrong with her or, or you know, whatever. I don't care. I, I want to not care and, and in the best possible way, right? I want to not care yeah. about the things that hold me back from pursuing the, the truth that I know. And that's goals for me. I can tell you're on your way there. Thank you. <laughs> we're going to be that. We're going to be those old ladies together. You mark my word. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm down with that for sure. Excellent. We'll get hats and shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> old ladies and, wear hats are the best. <laughs> and lots of jewelry. I want lots of jewelry, like bangles all up and down my yes, arm. Yes. Yeah. Big chunky necklaces and yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Tiffany, we have talked literally for two hours, um, which I knew we would. Right. Which is why we had to reschedule so many times, but I am as always eternally grateful for a conversation partner like you and grateful for the work that you do. I admire you and I am so glad you're in this world. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I feel the same about you and thanks for interviewing me. Thanks for this conversation. Don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.